right everyone welcome back to 80s high the podcast that revisits the most radical movies television toys music and disembodied humanoid figures that made that decade so darn magical i'm chris and i'm ben and this is 80s high benjamin Christopher. Twas three nights before Christmas, and here around the mics, uh, we sit to record on a couple of trikes. Are you riding a tricycle like me right now? I don't know. On a couple of trikes. No, it's good. Right. I keep calling it uh, Christmas Eve, Eve, Eve is what we're at right now. Eve cubed. Sounds like you got a little like stutter going on. <laughs> Exactly. Or, or maybe, or maybe you've got a record scratching going on. That's what it is. There it is. Um, it is. A Christmas Eve Eve Eve. And I, uh, Chris, I don't know about you, but I have been getting so much in the holiday spirit. And mm. part of that equation for me and for many lovers of 80s pop culture is to revisit those classic Christmas movies. Have you been, I mean, of course. Have you been watching anything? Have you been diving in? I have both indulged in a lot of classics I enjoy and ventured out into a few new movies I hadn't Ooh. watched before. So Ooh, kind of a nice mix of the two. I even took in a, uh, not a Hallmark Christmas movie, but a very Hallmark-esque. Like oh. it's very much in that spirit. It's just not from Hallmark Channel. Okay. I heard um, one of my favorite podcasts, How Did This Get Made, did the 12 Pups of Christmas, which was oh boy. hilarious. <laughs> it's like a very Hallmarky movie. <laughs> they did an amazing job on it. I, oh, that sounds great. You know, it's a mix for me rewatching this year. There are a couple that I feel like still hold up so well and are so good. There's a couple that are making me feel a little old. And oh. like there's one that I'm going to commit absolute heresy on this podcast oh. with. Oh, dear. Uh, right out of the gate. Okay. I know. And I'm, I'm curious if you've watched any of these as well. The two that are making me feel old. Last night, we could finally say the Christmas season had arrived because Hans Gruber fell off the top of Nakatomi Plaza <laughs> as we watched Die Hard. Um, and I think I've told you this before. What I love uh, on our Christmas tree, and this is a little do DIY project you can do with your family at home, everybody. We have a Die Hard ornament that I made on my, our tree, which you just make a little box. You cover it in tinfoil, and then you print out the picture of Bruce Willis crawling through the air ducts and put it inside. It's a great... It is a lovely Easter egg on your Christmas tree. Thank you. I do love it. Yeah, it's so good. But I, I looked up during the movie, Bruce Willis is 33 and Die Hard. Oh, wow. 33. Three, saving that whole building, fighting terrorists. What have we been doing? Not that. Well, pff, if you think what have we been doing, <laughs> strap in for Home Alone. Oh, okay. Because the parents in Home Alone are 36 years old. And they have that like giant house. Although we've already discussed, I don't remember which episode it was, probably our Planes, Trains, and Automobiles episode. We think... The Don McAllister, the dad, the Don, yes. might might be in a little like shady business. You're like, He's there's no done. way a marketing man makes that much money. <laughs> hey, Kevin, don't eat the last piece of pizza. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, He's the Don. But, you know, at, at 36, they're flying 15 people to Paris. I looked I, I looked that up. That's that's eighteen thousand uh, dollars. And today, that's money including like what? Four first class seats, too. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. So that's probably even more. I mean, a lot more. 
It's nuts. Have you watched either of those yet this season? Have you got into them? Oh, Home Alone has been like heavy rotation. I've probably watched it at least four times. It's great. It's so fun. That is my go-to. That's my standard. Uh, I haven't actually watched Die Hard yet, but it is on the list. I got to squeeze okay, that good. one in before I got a few more days. You still have a few more days. It's Wicka Wicka Eve Eve Eve. So and right before we started recording, we watched Muppet Family Christmas. Oh, nice. Which is charming. It's adorable. Fraggles are in it, of which we have talked about oh, on this show. Oh, that's right. That's right. The fraggles show up. And it's like, on the rewatch now, there's a lot of like adult humor slipped in there. Oh, yes. With, between the Sesame Street characters and the Muppets and the Fraggles. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend that movie. That happens a lot in like children-targeted programming, like cartoons, yeah. animated shows. And not even just like back then, but even now. Like it's interesting and it really does go over kids' heads. You're like, wait, how did I not realize this when I was watching it? And I got to say, like, you know, around the holidays, too, to that point, if you're with family who's got a variety of kids' ages, you feel seen as an adult when children's writers put some adult jokes in there because you're going to watch some dumb stuff on rotation that you're like, kill me. I can't believe how dumb toddler programming is. But when there's a good, ha-ha, funny adult joke in it, you're like, all right, I I like you. I see you. I I imagine pure child-aimed entertainment is a just awful for adults that's oh my, my I, I haven't watched oh my a lot of it thankfully but that's my guess it's just it's terrible yeah yeah the only other two i've got a christmas vacation yeah still still fun uh you know kind of in the topic that we talk about in the show it doesn't necessarily hold up uh as far as like inclusivity and that sort of stuff but okay. but the movie knows that's what it is the new the movie it comes out of the gate saying it's irreverent and insulting and stupid that's very national lampoon, right? Like, that's really, yeah, you know, that's yeah. their style for sure. I'm not saying it gives them a full pass, but at least it helps the pill go down. And it's funny. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Here's the last one I'm going to give you a big curveball on. Uh, I got a hold of a Blu-ray copy of Charlie Brown Christmas. Okay. And we started, watch, have you watched Charlie Brown Christmas? When's the last time you watched a Charlie Brown Christmas? Oh, my God. I'm probably a kid. It's been yeah. that long. Um, Talking about children's programming... How kids treat each other in children's programming has really changed Mm. because Lucy is a monster. (laughs) She is a cold-blooded, soul-sucking succubus who just runs around telling everyone they're stupid. She only gives advice in return for physical affection from children. She has a kissing booth. You know, it doesn't feel very cheerfully Christmas. It's a hard one to swallow. She is evil. Listen, Lucy's a monster. She lives life on her own terms. She's very like <laughs> upfront about it. There's no, you know, there's no guesswork here. Love it or not, that is who she is. Do not try and tell me that Lucy's a proto Pat Benatar. It's not going to happen <laughs> for me. She's not shoulder shimmying into elementary school. She's just it's hurling insults down. at everybody from behind oh her booth. Yeah. God. Um, But that's how I've been ringing in the season. Lots of great carols. But you know, you threw me a curveball this season. There was one Christmas carol I did not expect to listen to so much on repeat. And no, it was not all I want for Christmas. Yeah, what was it? It was a tune I had to re-listen to over and over again by one Mr. Herbie Hancock. Yeah. That really has defined my holiday season. You know that old Christmas ditty, Rocket, by Herbie Hancock. <laughs> Everybody sings. And actually, that's what carolers go and sing. They just go and... Actually, that would be amazing. Could you imagine caroling that song? 
ding dong, wicka 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 bump. Like some human beatboxing. Yeah. A little bit of scatting. Actually, you know what? I bet there's an acapella group that's done it. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I bet it's happened. <laughs> the family opens the door and all the carolers just start breakdancing on the sidewalk in front of them. That would be amazing. I mean, hey, you could have a keytar. You could take a keytar. Oh, okay. my God. Listen. They close the door. They're like, what did we just watch? What I know just happened on what our we're doing line? tomorrow night. So <laughs> clear your calendar, buddy. No more movies. We're caroling to Herbie Hancock's Hancock's Rocket. Rocket. I love it. Okay, well, I'm so excited to talk about this, Ben, because in very few instances do you get to combine jazz, hip-hop, turntables, and robotic torsos thrashing to the beat. So, (laughs) in order to decipher this madness, there's only one subject where we can learn where this all came from, and that's in history class. Meet me there if you dare. You just named everything that I want for Christmas. So I'm headed down there and I'll meet you in the room. Listen, the desiccated bird is out of the bag. You just found out what all my stocking stuffers to you were, Ben. Okay. So we are here to talk about the music video for Rocket. But to do that, we must first understand the song itself. And to understand the song... We have to learn about its creator. So. Cricket? First you gotta know what a crumpet is before you can understand cricket. <laughs> oh my god! Sorry, I'm still stuck on turtles from two we episodes so, ago. We're so it punchy a today. One. It's gonna be fun. Oh boy. Oh so boy. I am of course talking about Herbethy Esquire Hancock the Seventh. No, that's Herbeth- not his name. Herbeth- <laughs> short for Herbethy? Really? Can you imagine? Herbethy <laughs> sounds like something you study at Hogwarts. <laughs> I'm late for Herbethy. <laughs> I gotta go. I got Herbethy oh homework. Can you imagine? Oh my god. That's okay. awesome. That's awesome. We're not gonna get through this episode. Okay. Okay. So Herbethy Hancock III. Great. Continue. All right. So we're of oh course boy. talking about Herbert Jeffrey Hancock. He is oh, an Herbert, American jazz pianist, keyboardist, band leader, and composer. So Ben, to talk about this artist, I want to just share five fast facts because we could do an entire podcast about this man's yeah. career. But let's just Seriously. do five things that kind of give us – we're going to anchor ourselves in who and what Herbie Hancock is all about. So we're, of course, talking about Herbert Jeffrey Hancock. He's an American jazz pianist, keyboardist, band leader, and composer. He was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1940 to parents Winnie and Wayman. And they named him after jazz singer, songwriter, and actor Herb Jeffries. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. That's neat. There you go. He's got a jazz namesake. And we're going to be talking a lot about jazz in this episode because, oh boy, we've got a big name coming up here shortly. And third, Herbie started playing the piano. Do you know at what age he was playing the piano? Okay, I feel like I stumbled upon this. It is low single digits, what I saw. Yeah, seven years old. So seven. Seven? And and really, by all accounts, he's a child prodigy. Although it's funny, someone said that to an interview with him, and he's like, well, I wouldn't call myself that, but other people have said it. He's a very modest guy. For how much he's accomplished, yeah. So it starts playing at seven. By age 11, what is he playing? But the first movement of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number 26 in D major, otherwise known as the Coronation, with... A little outfit called the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. 
Come on. Yeah, when, I, when I read that, I had to go sit in the refrigerator because part of my brain actually melted. That like, he's not just tinkling. I learned to play hot cross buns and ode to joy. Right. When I was around that age. Yeah. By 11, he's not doing this at like the family reunion or at Christmas for the aunts and uncles who are applauding, you know, pathetically for his attempt. Right. The Chicago Symphony Orc. I mean, that's incredible. That's wild. After four years of learning to play. I feel, yeah, like you, I was like, at that age, I was like blowing three notes into like a recorder, right? right, right. <laughs> <laughs> terrible things. Oh my the gosh. recorder. Freaking recorders, That's man. Awesome. So yeah, this guy, out of the gate, talent. And we're going to see it just continues to develop over time. Uh, specifically, our next fun fact, he graduated Grinnell College in Indiana in 1960. Did you see what degrees he earned? No, but I feel like I read that he speaks like Five languages or something. Oh, he does? That's another great fact. Uh, he gets degrees in electrical engineering and music. You know, cool. like you do. Master of the cool. arts, master of the sciences. This guy's awesome. And in 1972, he's actually awarded by his college, his alma mater, an honorary doctorate of fine arts. So we may not be able to officially call him Sir Herbie, but we can certainly call him <laughs> Dr. Herbie. Doc Herbie. Doc Herbethy. Dr. Herbethy. So that's awesome. And for our last fast fact, uh, Herbie recorded his first solo album, Taken Off, for Blue Note Records in 1962. Note, this is two years after he graduated college. God. He has a solo album out in the world. And Watermelon Man is this bluesy track that made it into the top 100 singles chart. Did you listen to Watermelon Man by chance? No, is it banging? Is it awesome? It's an awesome tune. And the intro is really cool uh, because it's inspired, he said, by hearing the cries of the Watermelon Man in the alleys and back streets of Chicago. And this idea that the wagon wheel was kind of beating off rhythm on the cobblestones. So it's like he's finding music in the world and it's just like capturing him like, oh, that's an interesting sound and it's stuck. This gives me a thousand tangents. First of all, that sounds like the early aughts August Rush where like the kid hears all these different sounds in the world and composes a symphony about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe August Rush is the story of Herbie Hancock when he's a little kid. Second, not having heard Watermelon Man, but knowing your love of horror, I don't know what the Watermelon Man is, but I'm thinking of the Mothman. Like, is Watermelon Man someone who sells watermelons, or is this like someone in the 40s who was like murdering people in Chicago alleys and putting them on wagons? To my, that's a great question. To my understanding, it was not a, a mode of murder transport. It was indeed, okay. you know, someone crying their wares, so to speak. Okay, okay, okay. What else is interesting about it is it incorporates this uh, technique called Hindu that originates from pygmy music and the Central African Republic, and it's performed by Bill Summers. And it's this mix of like a whistle with vocalization. And you just have to hear it. It just sounds magical. Like it's not anything you've heard before, probably. So in addition to this sound on this particular track, the album as a whole is considered hard bop, which is the subgenre of jazz and an extension of bebop. And Ooh. it incorporates 
R&B and gospel music and blues and has some focus on like saxophone and piano playing. I scrubbed some songs on the album. I didn't do like a full hard listen, but I really enjoyed what I listened to. I think as a premiere kind of launch album, it was great. And I think Watermelon Man was just this wonderful song because it had this unique intro and then it just goes into a little funky jazz with some what I like to call Filthy sacks. I love filthy sacks filthy, on a jazz album. <laughs> filthy sacks? <laughs> I love filthy sacks on a jazz album. Filthy sacks. I'll keep that in mind. Okay, so Herbie is off to the races. And very quickly, I might add, because as I mentioned, that album comes out in 1962. One year later, he is asked to join the Miles Davis Quintet. That's right, listeners. Yeah. The one, the only, the legend miles freaking davis i was pretty stoked to learn that i feel like if you know about herbie hancock you probably already know that and that's not like a woe for you but i learned a lot about herbie hancock getting ready for this episode and when i found out that like yeah his main mentor was miles davis that's that's awesome that's so amazing it's wild and the fact is like miles heard the album and it caught his attention And he was assembling a new band at the time and wanted to get these young artists that showed a lot of potential. You know, often you think of young artists, they have to like, they're on the streets, they're in the clubs, they're trying to get their music into anyone's hands. And Miles Davis just comes across this music and seeks him out. Oh my goodness. That's just, it's amazing. And this starts, you know, a really great journey for Hancock because he really credits Davis for inspiring him and other young musicians to be experimental with their music, not to judge the notes and to take risks, take chances. And he says mm-hmm. that was a huge factor for the trajectory of his career, which is really going to come into play, as we'll learn, if you don't know already, for Rocket. Yeah. And while he's in Davis's band, he finds time to record dozens of sessions both under his name and as a sideman with other musicians. I hadn't really heard this term sideman, but I think it's side really... Man. It's your side hustle. It's like it's really common in jazz where it's like, you're not like a main member of a band, but they ask you to come sit in on a session or a performance or, hey, come, you know, play piano or keyboards for my album. Did you ever see uh, Pixar's Soul? No. Okay, the main character in Soul is like a jazz teacher who dies, and he tries to learn about, you know, get back to life. But he, his dream is to play with this one amazing jazz artist, and she invites him one night to sit, what now I am understanding is a sideman. Like, it's yeah. basically an audition. He gets to sit in for one night, and she sees how he plays. That's kind of cool. I get it. Yeah, so he's doing this for like dozens of different sessions. So this is a really prolific time for Herbie, and it's also where new sounds are created. He releases three albums in the 60s, and he tries different instruments that you don't expect in a traditional jazz arrangement. He's got a flugelhorn, an alto flute, a bass trombone. I'm sorry, a flugelhorn? So a flugelhorn is a kind of in the family of like trumpet and cornet. It's got a distinct sound from those three. Like I used to play trumpet. A cornet has a very similar sound to a trumpet. And flugelhorn's in that family. It's a brass instrument. I'm sorry. Cancel the rest of the episode. We're talking about jazz artists, and you played trumpet? Yeah, I did. Were you like in, in marching band? Was this, like, where did you play trumpet? And my last name is Armstrong. Who would have thought? Oh, my God. Who would have thought? Oh, my God. You sounded just like Louis. He, he learned a few things from me, Louis. But, uh, you know, that's just how it goes. <laughs> 
No, That's I awesome. Was I didn't know terrible. that. Terrible. Cool. I was terrible in band, but yeah, I did play the uh, play a little trumpet. So during this time, he's also composing music for film soundtracks, for TV commercials. He's starting to incorporate elements of rock and pop music into his recordings, really toward the end of his tenure with Miles Davis's band, and. It's also during this time that Miles is kind of insistent, like, hey, you should also learn to play the electric keyboards. And Hancock said he was like, I don't know about that. I don't think this is for me. And Davis is like, no, I insist. All that new age hibbity dibbity is not for me. That's right. But I'm like, do you tell Miles Davis no? I don't know that you do. You you do not. And thankfully, he wasn't able to say no or didn't say no because we're definitely going to see that keyboards are a huge part of especially his 80s sound. Yeah. So the 60s is really a time where he, I think, finds his footing as a musical innovator and he's incorporating these new sounds. He's fusing genres together and his curiosity leads him through all these different music styles like classical music to jazz to electronic music to rock funk disco hip hop all Mm. of these things he's exploring and that lands us on the doorstep of 1982 so what happens in 1982 he releases an album light me up doesn't do well doesn't get a lot of sales underperforms and he's not happy about that and he's like I'm looking for a new kind of sound. I need to give my career a boost. And oh boy, did Mr. Hancock receive a boost. Did he deliver or what? Because in 1983, what comes together but Future Shock, which is released by Columbia Records. Now, I knew about his discography, but this blew my freaking mind. Speaking of <laughs> Bruce Willis in a uh, in Nakatomi Tower at 33. Yeah. Do you know how many albums he's released? I, let me ask this differently. Do you know what number album release Future Shock is for him? I'll put it this way. If I had released one album every year of my life since birth, I would barely have released more than he has. It is incredible. I sat back in my chair. This is his 35th album. Like, 35th album. How is this mathematically possible? What's interesting about this album, and I learned this, is it really combines, I would say, three separate elements that come together to make the sound for this song. And the origin is actually kind of not Herbie, which was, again, shocking to me. So the musical arrangements are composed and road tested by bassist and record producer Bill Laswell and keyboardist and producer Michael Beinhorn. So Bill and Michael had already been working on some tracks testing them out in their band and they decide they want to pull in herbie to help finish writing all of the tracks as well as perform on the keyboards they think it's going to be a really cool sound to pull together so that's force number two force number three that comes into this is grand mixer d street he now goes by dxt yeah on the turntables yeah, he's, the, he's the scratch man. He's the scratch man. I've got to say, of those three, I have I have a humble admission to make that something f- made me feel really unintelligent. Okay. I, I I read Beinhorn, and I was like, I have heard that name. I know that name. And I was sitting there, and I was going, Beinhorn. Beinhorn. Hold on. Is this an Ace Ventura Pet Detective reference? Yes. It is? <laughs> 
Finkel and Beinhorn. Oh, what a dummy. Einhorn from Ace Ventura. That's what I was thinking. And I had no idea who Beinhorn was. It was terrible. Oh, my God. Uh, no, but his career is awesome. Like, once you read into Beinhorn, like, everything he was involved in, he is an amazing, amazing musician. Absolutely. And, and this really does start a collaboration between Hancock and Laswell. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So these are those three forces that come together to bring all of the sound of this album. And really, I think it all comes to a head at Rocket, where all of these are firing on all three cylinders, if you will. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about this song, Rocket. It is the first single from the album, and it's the only standout hit. And it breaks a lot of ground, including it's the first jazz hip-hop song. It became a worldwide anthem for breakdancers and for hip-hop in the 80s. It's the first mainstream single to feature scratching and a turntable as an instrument. It's the first jazz song to incorporate hip-hop. It featured an innovative music video that became a hit on MTV and goes on to win five awards at the inaugural MTV Video Music Awards. We'll talk about that. And as I mentioned, it ushered in a collaboration with producer Bill Laszlo and Hancock. So this one song alone is really kind of pulling, again, much like the album pulled different things together, this song is pulling different things together. I think that's key. And I think it's like, if you're like half listening to this, like if you're writing up a report at work right now, or you're like on your commute, you're kind of like, meh, here's the thing. Stop what you're doing and listen. Maybe you sort of like vaguely remember Rocket and you're like, oh yeah, that was a great song in the 80s. We're doing this topic because this song alone is so important Mm -hmm. in music and like what it elevated to the masses and what it did and invented. It's a massive milestone in culture and music. It is. So let's talk a little bit about what it pulls together. So it's by no means the first of a lot of things, but it does blend some stuff together in a unique way. So let's talk about what those things are. So first off is hip hop. We've been talking about that. By the time this album is coming out, hip hop was growing in popularity, but it was by no means mainstream. Now, Ben, what is kind of the, maybe not the first song that includes rap, but probably a lot of people's first introduction to rapping? What song is that? I said a hip hop. A hippie to the hippie to the hip hop, you don't stop a rock. In the bang bang boogie, say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie the beat. I think you got like four more minutes to uh, to sing there. Now gonna... what you hear is not a test. <laughs> oh, I'm it. rapping to the beat. <laughs> and me, the groove. And, yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. So who is that? It's Sugar Hill Gang and their song Rapper's Delight. 1979, my birthday. Which crushed my heart. I didn't realize that song. I mean, I think because I was exposed to that song at like junior high dances much later. Mm-hmm. And to know that that it was like from 1979 is, yeah. is amazing. Is amazing. And so, again, that's about four years prior to Rocket coming out. So, again, it's by no means the first, but we haven't quite seen hip-hop fully hit the mainstream just yet. It's had had a little bit of traction. Also, the same thing can be said of turntable scratching. So, there's a song called Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren, which, when he heard it, caught Herbie's attention for its use not just of record scratching— but also the use of a drum machine, which is incorporated into Rocket. And this song is in 1982. So you have to imagine he's hearing this while they're in the studio or just before they're in the studio. And he's like, I heard it and I said, that's exactly what I want to do. That's the sound. 
like Watermelon Man, did you get a chance to listen to Buffalo Gals? Uh, not the full song, but I heard a little bit of it. Okay, so there's this line in Buffalo Gals, and I want to remember this is 1982, and I mm-hmm. want to see if like you can, if this like rings a bell with you. Okay. So there's this line repeated over and over again. It changed a little bit, but it's two Buffalo Gals go round the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Three Buffalo Gals go round the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Meet me outside. Does that sound familiar at all? Meet me outside, DMX. No, DMX. No. What are you talking about? So 30 years later, Eminem and Without Me starts Without Me. Two trailer park girls go round the outside, round the outside, round the outside. It's an exact callback to Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren 30 years earlier. That, that really got stuck in my head. Wow, that is incredible. Also, okay, so when you said that, the way you were singing the cadence, so it's DMX's song, Party Up. Up in here, you know, y'all gonna make me lose okay, my okay. mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's that part was like, one, Up two, meet me outside, meet me outside. Like the oh, way you really? were singing that, I thought me of that, which oh. was then which was then sampled or covered, if you will, in Hamilton, where it's the meet me inside, meet me inside. So look at all the, well, you Whoa. always say this, we have to know the thing that inspired the thing. We've now gone yeah. back like 17 layers. Such a catchy line. That's wild. I love it. It's awesome. So Buffalo Gals, this is so great. You know, what what Herbie kind of said about this is he's like, you know, I'm a curious person. I like the challenge of putting together two things that people say can't be done. And he's like, the, the way you get me to do something is to say it won't work. And so he's like, hold on a second. We can incorporate this hip hop sound, this jazz sound with turntable scratches and make it all come together. And he's like, people just, they didn't think it was possible. But my word, if he did not prove the naysayers wrong, if there's anything you've learned about 80s high, we love it when someone proves naysayers wrong. And they're just like, hold my can of Pepsi free. Hold my can of tab imitation cola. Hold my my tab. (laughs) Hold my tab. And in fact, DXT, uh, again, he's the Grandmaster D Street at the time. He said it was the first time a jazz legend had worked with hip-hop and rock fusion. Yeah, I thought that was cool. And it was really cool. And he's like, hey, we all went into the studio. He's like, I had no clue what I was doing. We just went into the studio. I did what I was doing. Herbie did what he was doing. And everything just kind of fell into place. And that is a very jazz sensibility. We're going to improvise. We're going to come together. We're going to find it in the moment. We're not going to plan it out. We're not going to orchestrate it. It's not going to be sheet music that we all come and just play. We're going to find it in the studio, which is amazing. Jazzy too. Like jazz, you know, when you see sheet of jazz music, you've basically got the riff you all come back to. And then it's like 14 bars of make some stuff up is is what it literally says on the page. So they're, they're, they're living with Herbie's background. That's cool. Yeah. And if you're curious about DJ scratching and you just want to understand how particularly it's the part of the song that's like, (laughs) like that part. So there's this fantastic video. I just recommend if you're interested in the song, you go watch on YouTube. It's songs that changed music. Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Uh, The channel's produced like a pro and the host is Warren Hewitt. It's a fantastic like 18 minute video. And part of it is he has... He features this video from DJ as one who breaks down all how the scratches are created. And so I'm going to describe this like a person who's never seen a turntable before <laughs> at all. 
<laughs> but suffice to say, what Aswan says is like, you know what they did on this song is incorporate some pretty basic DJ techniques. But what's interesting is the way they combine them together. And it's done in a way that's unexpected and creative. So it originates with the audio sample of the word fresh. And then it's a combination of different scratch techniques, which include stabs, quarter note releases, a reverse chop, and three baby scratches or scribbles. I don't know what any of those mean, but I love all the words. Uh, That's amazing. I love it all. And if you know anything about scratching and turntables, maybe you understood all that. He does a really good job of like showing you exactly how to scratch it and spin it. It's one of the few videos that actually breaks down this song. It was really good. Just because of your like amazing scratching sound effects, I feel like in a recent episode you made the exact same sound, but I can't remember why. Was it from planes, trains, and automobiles? Because there was the or or was like some jacket. It was some sort of like uh, parachute jacket sound. No, no, no. It it was from planes, trains, and automobiles. There's a song. It's like you're messing with the wrong guy, and it has DJ scratches in it. It does the like. Like it's it's got like a really interesting um, sound to it. And when I was watching this video and just listening to the song, I was like, oh my god. I can't say this influenced that, but that song that came out later in the 80s incorporates DJ scratches. So already it had been in a mainstream buddy comedy movie, you know, by the mid to late 80s. Yeah. So those are just some of the, again, the things that come together for this album and for the song. And it's so funny. There's this great story. Demo in hand. They have Rocket before it's a single out on the radio out as a single for people to go pick up at their local record store. Kids look up all those words. Anyway, they they said they were walking by a stereo store. This is Laswell and DXT. And they stop at a stereo store and they want to hear how the song sounds on different speakers. And they say as they're playing this song, like kids are coming up like, what is that song? What are you playing? When can we hear it? awesome. And Laswell said... I think we have a hit on our hands. Sure enough, they did. Because this song is released as a single in June of 83, and then Future Shock, the album, comes out the next month. It peaks at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot Dance Club play charts, and it also hits number eight on the U.K. singles chart. So, pretty much out of the gate, Rocket is a banger off of this album. One thing I want to go back to a fast about the team that produces this song, you know, you named Herbie plus the three gentlemen who were involved in the production of this. And I'm giving like the cliff notes of this. But when you read like the detailed history of the song, there are a million people involved with like, like you said, sidemen who are like different sidemen mm. on this song. I'm not going to list all the names, but it just blows my mind because if you listen with just like a very novice ear, you hear a drum machine. You hear the keyboard, and you hear, like, the scratching with the turntable. You, you hear basically three people doing something. But right. there are, like, 13 people involved somehow in this song all over the country. You know, it's been, it was, like, sent all over the place to get finished and everything. It, a ton of people made this song happen. Yeah, there's, like, three additional artists who were on turntables. So it wasn't just Grand Mixer DXD. Yeah. There's also some Bada drums. Uh, Daniel Ponce. Yeah. There's a lot of complexity to uh, to make this all come together. Absolutely. 
So that is the song Rocket. We have now arrived at the music video. Again, it's a success, mm-hmm. but where this song really kind of just rockets off, if you will, uh, is, you know, I had to get the joke in there. I'm surprised it took us this long. But anyway. It did take us a long time. Is this music video, which is probably what brought you here. And you have to imagine Herbie is this explorative, creative guy. He trusts the process. So he had this fever dream vision of how the optics could somehow match the acoustics that they have created. Don't lie to the people. He said, okay, step one. Robots. Step two, mannequins. Step three, a lot of twitching. Step four, a creepy, <laughs> so desiccated bird. Step five, chaos. Is that that's what happened, right, Ben? Like this that's not, your, that's what you imagine, people, and that's exactly how it came to be, right? People come to '80s High for two things: the nostalgic commercials you put during lunchtime, and truth. Do not lie. <laughs> To our audience about how this went down. Although I do think this video is where twerking began. I think this is the start of the twerking movement. My God, this video. Amazing. So, you know, the idea comes for a music video. And Herbie's like, I didn't know anything about music videos at the time. Remember, we've talked about this. It's still a very nascent thing to say, I'm going to take my song, put visuals to it, and put it on music television. Like, what are all these words you just said it's together in that order? Time. It's super weird. Yeah. So very few people were doing them at that time. It was still a new thing, but certainly no one had done it quite like Rocket. It really was a standout. And ultimately why it stuck with me and why I chose it for today's topic. So Herbie said that his greatest contribution was saying yes. Yeah. He's like, yeah. I had no clue what was going on. I left it up to the creators of the video who we'll talk about. And I just said yes and let them do their thing. You know, he's like (laughs) watching it in retrospect. I love what he said. He's like, that sounded like that looked. So basically he's like, he points to the album is like that sounded and then points to the video like that looked. And it's true. There is a interesting mapping of the sound to the video. And we'll talk about why that is. Yeah, I won't run ahead, but it's interesting that he sees that because the director saw the the opposite the opposite and the same. That yeah. like that thing is moving like that song sounds. So let's let's put them together. Well, who are who are the directors of this uh video? Who do we get to to put this masterpiece to visual form? So the Rocket Music video is directed by a couple of band members from the band 10cc, which I'm assuming is cubic centimeters, a reference to a very tiny engine if it's 10cc. It's a very small engine, yeah. It's a BB engine. I mean, in Mario Kart, you can get like, what, 100cc? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 10cc is like an egg timer. That's right. Um, (laughs) It's uh, Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream. And one of the reasons that Herbethy III loves that Godley is on this is, you know, they're from a band. They're musicians, so at least they can help bridge that understanding between like making this foreign, what is this newfangled music video, and music. Maybe since they know both sides, they can help bridge this gap. So these guys get to create a brief that outlines what they want to do. And the main goal of this brief that they get is to get Herbie on MTV. That's the goal. And, And if people don't know, why is that notable? MTV at the time is really not playing any black artists at all. I think we talked about this with um, Michael Jackson's Thriller. I think and we Thriller's talked about that a little bit. Thriller's the only exception. And yeah. Thriller's like this massive budget production, and that's why it gets the airtime. Right. I tried to dig in, and I really couldn't find like a clear, like, 
this dude hated anybody who wasn't a white artist, so they never ran them on MTV. I couldn't find like the clear story, but Kevin Godley in, in several interviews just talks about like that was the thing because MTV just wasn't playing it at the time. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to guess there's layers of reasons as to why. Yeah. A lot of it is just underlying and systemic, which, you know, can be systemic. gnarly in yeah. its own right. But yeah, I, I love that they were like, this is our goal. And that's why he actually shows up in the music video, because there's in some way no reason for him to be in the music video. He's not singing. No. Like he does kind of sing along to some of the more lightly lyrical parts in the video. Sure. But his involvement there compared to whatever everything else that's going on is, is juxtaposed. But like they said it was that important to them, which I, I really appreciated them doing that. Right. You think about how front and center Benatar is in her first MTV music video. You think about how front and center Michael Jackson is in Thriller. And Herbie is on a small, crappy 1950s TV on the floor in a corner in like three shots of his own music video. That's right. Very strange. And we should back up and say that Godly and Cream directed their first music video in 1979. Mm, Yeah. So again, this is the same year that Sugar Hill Gang releases... Their big song. This is when Godly and Cream are releasing their first music video for a song called An Englishman in New York. And this also blew my mind. Speaking of statistics and numbers, they were involved in the production of more than 50 videos in the early 80s. That's pretty amazing, actually. These are some of the artists they worked for. The Police. Yes. Duran Duran. Wang Chung. Ever heard of any of these people? No. Who are they? (laughs) Who are they? Bunch of underground artists, only hipsters know. And they also had one of their groundbreaking videos. It's their single Cry in 1985. I don't know if you've seen this video. It uses that technology where people's faces kind of merge into the next person. It's kind of that crossfade. It's cool. It's cool. It's a really cool effect and just very beautifully shot. I also want to throw out there just because, you know, I'm struggling with a lot of names in this episode that I feel like Godly and Cream is a type of like artisan chocolate you get someone at Easter that you're like, oh, you got me godly and creams? Oh, you you shouldn't have. Like, it's a nougat, you know, kind of thing. Are you hungry or something? I just, I'm what's so going hungry. on over there? That's uh, <laughs> we need to take a snack break. Lunch is coming early. Like it. <laughs> oh, godly and creams. Oh, oh my man. goodness. Tangerine? Ooh. Well, and uh, Herbie really credits their musical foundation, the fact that they are musicians, with doing such a good job on this music video. Because they're like, he said they understood the song on that musical level. And he said they used video scratches just like the music scratches were done. So when you get to the scratching part, the video is really in lockstep of emulating that with some of those animatronics kind of twitching and, or, you know, as you said, what was it? Popping and locking? What did you say? This is the origin uh, this of... This is twerking. This is the origin twerking, of twerking. twerking. That's right. <laughs> yeah, twerking. exactly. So that's Godly and Cream. Again, we're going to bring forces together here. This is like the magic of threes for this episode. We had three forces yeah, that brought right. the album together, three forces that brought the uh, song together, and now we have three forces bringing this music video together. Number two is Mr. Jim Whiting. Ah, uh, yes. The horror puppet master. Fantastic. S- Strap in, folks. Strap (laughs) in. Mr. Whiting is a British artist and inventor. He studied electronic engineering and system controls and sculpture. Again, when you hear Herbie did electrical engineering and music, you're like, you know what? It makes sense. There's the experimental aspect. He gets into electronic music. Sure, the guitar makes a lot more sense now. (laughs) 
when you know this guy studied electronic engineering and system controls and sculpture, you're like, 2,000%. Of course he did. Of course. Duh. He's had installations featured in British museums, galleries, festivals, including at that time at the Royal National Theater. Again, you're probably listening because you know this music video, and the mechanical sculptures are by far the centerpiece. He says that he's been, he was obsessed with the human form since childhood. And, you know, I referred to them last episode as mannequins because that's what I think they look like. Some people say robots. Some people say there's like a thousand words you could use. He says they're kind of like unnatural bodies. That's real nice for what these are. He says they're indescribable beings. They are figures that exaggerate human movement to the point of absurdity. Those are just a few things that he said. I watched a documentary where they talked to him. It's very fascinating. We'll put it in the show notes. Oh, good. Okay. He's a very interesting guy, certainly an artist with an artist sensibility. Also, he said something else interesting. He's like, I made things to prolong an experience. And what he meant by that is like, it's like going to the fair, seeing the tilt-a-whirl or seeing the Ferris wheel. It inspired him to have, I'm going to name a lot of these characters as I call them in this music video so we can talk about them, but High Heels Walking Legs. Um, is kind of on this arm that's controlling it. walking legs. And so that has like a sensibility of, you know, something you would see at a fair, carnival, or amusement park, right? Something that's like pivoting or twirling around, you know, center point, like a twirler. Sure. You think of like how kids at like a county fair can go up and there's like a pony on a pole walking in a circle. They get it. Take the pony out and just put two naked legs with heels on. And that's, that's like the first robot you see. So he said that was some of his inspiration for these figures and that he finds a lot of his materials at the scrapyard because, in his words, I'd like to find rubbish and make it wonderful rather than buy a wonderful thing. When I read kind of like how he puts his models together, it did take me back to the time that for elementary school art class, I disassembled my father's rowing machine to build a robot. Oh. For which I did not receive his permission. I was going to say, how'd that go for you? Uh, real bad. Did not go well. Uh, no, You're, my father. Are you was a very, still grounded? Are you still grounded? I, technically, <laughs> still in my room in the corner. Please send godly and creams. I'm very hungry. Watching more episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> it's basically it. But I dig. I dug his. Uh, I dug his style. Uh, I mean, I. I sorry. I. I should take that back. I. I dug his artistic theory. Waiting's theory of putting the stuff together. Well, yeah, and some of the the clockwork behind it, if you will, is using like motorized gears, there's artificial muscles, there's compressed air, there's computers, there's a lot going on beneath the trouser legs that you don't see that's really interesting and a little bit terrifying if, you know, the belt is loosened and the pants come down. What you see beneath it, you can't see it in the video. It's a thing of nightmares. But it's very fascinating. I do want to talk about some of these characters more in chemistry class, but from a history perspective, is there anything else we should talk about with some of these creations? You, as a lover of horror movies, I would just love to hear your take on this. So, you know, Godly reaches out to Whiting that they want to use his robots, not be inspired by it, but literally employ Whiting on this music video to bring the robots to life in it. Right. And so Whiting and and I'm sure some wonderfully British conversation, artistic creative is like, come over to my flat and, I, you know, we can talk about it. And Godly has this great story of like looking in the window and Whiting decorates his home with his creations. So you're oh, like yes. looking through the curtains in the window and they're like... 
robot human body parts hanging off of the walls. In that documentary that I watched, he's basically talking about them as if they were like friends or people that he knows. So that is not surprising to me, but no less haunting when you're just walking by and you happen to turn your head and look through the window of his apartment and you just see this nightmare mannequin factory of (laughs) robot pieces strewn everywhere. The robots really are what helps. They are they are the sugar that helps the medicine go down. Because remember, MTV will not play black artists unless you're Michael Jackson and you spent a gazillion dollars making Thriller. And so when they pitch back to MTV of like this is going to be a bunch of robots, and the but the artist you're barely going to see the artist. He'll be occasionally on a television. That's how they get it greenlit to go on MTV. Is is really this like weird, wacky, funky robot thing? Is how they make it actually happen. There is a third part of this magic coming together. Do you know who the cinematographer was who shot this music video? Like, looking at the style of it, it's zany, it's jerky, it's crazy, it's fast shots, it's tight and wide. It feels like a small monster zany comedy from the 80s. Like, I would not be surprised. Gremlins has too many wide shots. But if it was like munchies from the late 80s, if, if, I wouldn't be surprised it was like the whoever, same guy who did munchies. Whoever that guy is. Uh, who is it? Who did it? Roger Deakins. Widely considered to be the best cinematographer of all time. He's been director really? of photography on nearly 100 projects, including, are you ready? Buckle up for this. Shawshank Redemption, A Beautiful Mind, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Fargo, No Country for Old Men, Skyfall, Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, 1917, just to name, what, eight out of 100. Okay. The guy's amazing. I'll give him that. So, I mean, obviously early in his career, pre-doing all of those things, but- It's just mind-blowing, the confluence of all of these amazing people who come together to have created this interesting intersection that is Rocket in this music video. It's super cool. Well, and I'm just going to throw out, like, right before he does Rocket, Deacons does director of photography for 19... He's DP on 1984. He does sexual healing from Marvin Gaye, his music video. Nice. Which is awesome. Uh, And he also does uh, Van Morrison in Ireland, which I'm assuming is the live performance. But uh, so he's got he's got some big names before he comes in with uh, Hancock. That's cool. I love all that. So what what else do you got for history class? The only other two things I thought were really interesting about the editing of this video and actually filming it, which are pretty fascinating, is actually while they filmed it on on the set, filming the robots going ballistic and nuts and twerking. uh, There's no music. You don't hear Rocket on set. Unlike when you see music videos normally, it's a band playing and they're probably lip syncing along to the music and you hear the music because the hydraulics on Whiting's robots are so loud that Mm -hmm. they would have just drowned out the music and it just wouldn't have worked. So what they did is they just spent the day like taking these wide random shots and tight shots and sweeping. They just got every, all the variety of shots of these characters without really necessarily thinking of like the beat or the music. And then later took what shots they liked and cut it to the music, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, there's a movie making technique similar to that. So like if you ever see people like let's say they're at a dance club in a movie and they're talking to each other, that music is also not playing. So typically what they'll do is they'll like play the music before the director says action so everyone can kind of find the beat. And then (laughs) the music drops before the dialogue comes in because again, the music would just drown out all the dialogue and you know, you couldn't edit and cut it well. 
So what? you just see, if you've ever seen behind the scenes, it's like someone's dancing to a song, it cuts out, and then you just see a bunch of people writhing to silence. And then Ooh, there's no. this group of three people having their mu- their movie dialogue. It's very interesting. Yeah. I'll be very honest. I never knew that. That's awesome. The last little fact I have about this is they tried some innovative editing with this. Godly really wanted to have the the video kind of scratch that just like the the music does. And what I mean by that is like when you watch the music video, the robot legs will move forward and then move back and then move forward and then move back. Yeah, and it's not we're that they're about that actually earlier. right and right. And the robot legs aren't actually doing that. It's a painstaking process. So what they did is they would shoot on film and then transfer it to videotape. So they transferred it twice. So they did one full reel and forward, and then they had one whole videotape and backward. They literally are physically cutting shots from the video tape and taping them together. Like, here's a few shots and forward. Here are four frames and backward, four frames forward again. Godly says, like, it was grueling, but it was 24 hours straight of, like, cutting and taping physical tape to make it happen. Listen... Editing videos is so painstaking, even these days. But I think we can all appreciate the fact that we're not having to unspool (laughs) actual film, actual tape, cut, do all this kind of stuff. Or even like older movies, like they would like scratch it so it looked like uh, shooting lasers at people. They put like the little physicals. Oh, man. Can we just appreciate that that is no longer a thing we have to do? A thousand percent. It's amazing. Well, we have one more big event we need to talk about to wrap up history. Sit with me if you can, because you're probably going to hop out of your seat, because all of these people did at the 26th Grammy Awards live performance of Rocket in 1984. Ben, did you happen to see this? I watched it top to bottom, left to right, the whole thing. Okay, so I'm going to explain it for the listeners, and I would encourage you to go watch it. So there is a live onstage performance complete with the animatronics, the apparatus, the unnatural figures, whatever you want to call them. So first off, Herbie and Company is introduced by John Denver. It's awesome. D Street is there, DXT, he's on the turntables. Herbie's rocking out on a keytar. Okay, can we just pause for a second? A keytar. And I love that Miles Davis was like, you're going to play the electric keyboard. And Herbie was like, no, I am not. And he was like, I insist. And years later, he's on a freaking keytar at the Grammys. It's awesome. It is awesome. It is amazing. He would never have foreseen it. But, you know, it gives him mobility because he's dancing. He's moving around the stage. It is a performance for sure. Yeah, yeah. Above DXT are the three kicking trouser legs. And you have a bunch, again, of those figures. The one bouncing in bed. You have the one that's hitting the other one in the head. You've got one that's kind of popping and locking. You've got the one that's sitting in the chair, just kind of moving its head. Yeah, right. And you got my favorite, binocular flashlight eyes. (laughs) Binocular flashlight eyes. It's so accurate. But then there's a freaking mic drop halfway through. And what is that mic drop in? So I really do like this twist and that like the full-bodied so robots hop up, come to life, and we suddenly discover they are actually real dancers in costume and they freaking break dance like madmen on stage. The audience loses their minds. <laughs> it's so cool. You just have to watch it. It is so loud. Everyone is just like 
freaking it even, out. It even cuts to Michael Jackson, who's in the audience, like, gleaming like a child. Like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's really good. Oh, I like that. Like, he's so into it. Yes. Yeah, so the show stops. Herbie freezes on stage. Standing ovation. Who's next to Michael Jackson, by the way? Who's, like, in his full regalia? Like, the black with the, like, the gold trim, the glove. He's, like, peak Michael Jackson. Next to him is Emmanuel Lewis, a.k.a. Webster. Next to him is Quincy Jones. And then on the other side, Brooke Shields. Like, this pretty amazing. four people was just so 80s-tastic. I loved it so much. Uh, by the way, he's then presented with the award. He, he wins for Best R&B Instrumental Performance for Rocket. So he earns a Grammy. Talking about ages, he's 44 years old by the way, wow. wins a Grammy. He's been making music at that point for 22 years. Super cool. It's a great acceptance speech. He just seems, again, like a very humble guy. Like he's having fun. You can just tell. But yeah. what a performance to think that these are machines on a stage that suddenly just start freaking break. Like the windmill, everybody. The one where the legs are <laughs> flying everywhere that ends in like a, it's a somersault position. Yeah. Like 20 mile an hour spin. It is amazing. So good. It was really, really good. Rocket also won five MTV awards, including best concept video, best art direction. Herbie kind of muses in one of his interviews. He's like... No one had won four MTV Music Awards. And he's like, Michael Jackson only won three. So <laughs> he had like a nice little like, I see you, Michael, but also, you know, try to keep up. It was pretty funny. Uh, and VH1 has also included it in its 100 greatest videos. Rocket is the 10th greatest video. This is back in 2001. So it's gotten certainly a lot of accolades. Yeah, Herbie said all those accolades like gave him a ton of confidence and inspiration to go do even more creative videos in the future. It sort of reminds me again of the Spielberg throwback of like after Jaws crushed it, he's like, I could do anything I wanted. And like, yeah. <laughs> that was Herbie's rocket. But I also loved the little, I don't know, it's like a, uh, this was interesting. The, that one of the awards that it won was a uh, most experimental video, which was like a brand new category that was only, you know, later throwout was won by Sledgehammer. Which we oh, covered in our first season. We sure did. Uh, but that Episode category only three, lasted everybody. For, yeah, but that category only lasted for four years. So I feel like it was Aww. like invented just to celebrate like Thriller and Rocket, and then they were like, they saw Sledgehammer, and they're like, it's not getting any weirder than that. Let's just, let's just, <laughs> let's just, we're done, we're done. Yeah, we're just gonna retire the category. Okay, Ben. I don't know about you, but I just heard the coolest song on the school's loudspeaker, and I need to talk with my friends about it. And so what I'm hoping is that you'll join me in chemistry class so we can talk about our experiences with the song and music video. What do you say? Much like pinwheeling legs on the sidewalk, we need to break this down. And I would mm. love to go there with you and get into it. All right, we're here in chemistry to break it down. I dare say break dance it down with all of the <laughs> amazingness that is this music video. This, of course, is where we talk about our experience as well as others' experiences with it. Ben, off the top, what do you remember? What's your earliest memory of Rocket, the music video or the song? So I'll have to admittedly say I I have no youthful memory of this. And still to this day, when I think about this song, and I don't think I'd ever seen the music video, actually. So this was fa this is a fascinating ride. Okay. But the problem I keep having is the synth hook is so so recognizable 
in the song. Yeah, but I keep accidentally in my head mixing it with... Um, is this Beverly Hills Cop? Yes. So how does that start? I'm reading your mind today. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. But I keep mixing that with Beverly Hills Cop, right, which is a... We talked about this last episode with Flight of the Navigator. We were like, the soundtrack just sounds so much like freaking Beverly Hills Cop. It does. And maybe maybe that's because Beverly Hills Cop theme song is just the 80s to me in general. Maybe that's my problem. Or maybe a synthesizer is like a theremin. It only sounds... A few ways. I think is that that's what it, is? what it is because the tone of the synth keyboard in both songs is really the same. Like, there's a lot yeah. of different synth keyboards out there. That whatever, how you ever want to tune it and, and set it, these do sound really similar. But I, I feel ridiculous that I'm keeping like, is that Beverly Hills Cop or is that Rocket? Uh, sure, they sound very different when you listen to them. So you heard it here, folks. The synthesizer is the theremin of the '80s. <laughs> Mark good. it down. Uh, what about you? Where did where did you first encounter uh, trouser legs hovering over a couch? Yeah, so I was definitely a child sometime in grade school. I don't know if it was when this came out or, you know, sometime after. But MTV certainly was, like, on in our household from time to time. And I just remember seeing it and being very interested, fascinated by it, perhaps even confused. It's just visually you can't unsee it. And the particular figures that stuck out, I think for me and a lot of people, are those kicking trouser legs. You know, at first they kind of come out of these like cupboards. It's almost like a a wardrobe, like a clothes wardrobe. And then later there's just three of them suspended over a couch. There's just something odd about them that just really stuck. That, and I remembered a skeleton pecking at a window and it was that bird. right, right. And it's like a broken window. I've remembered that a little bit. I don't think I accurately remembered it, but I remembered something about a bird at a window. And... Of course, the music, like you said, that synth melody is just so captivating, as well as the scratch noises. Like there are different elements of like the turntable scratch or like the um, some of the other music parts that I was like, I had to re-listen to remember. But those few things just firmly embedded in my brain. And again, I, I have a love of things that are slightly off or a little haunting, and I think this music well, video, of course, fits the bill. It's yeah. almost as if you did Sledgehammer and you were like, well, we're not going to get any weirder. And I was like, well, now that you mention it. Hold, uh, <laughs> hold my half-constructed robot baby. Right. It's two seasons later, but uh, I finally found it. You know, you, you, you're talking about like you can't look away. Th- this, is, this is a visual siren song. Mm. I watched this music video so many times in preparation for this episode. And like when we did Beverly Cleary, I read The Mouse and the Motorcycle one time. When we did Alf, I watched each of those episodes once. I've never like had to rewatch or reread the thing, the topic, whatever we were doing. But there is like a morbid fascination where like I'll, I'll watch it. I'll be like, what did I just watch? What was that? All right. I'm sure I can figure it out on the second watch. And I'll watch it again. I'll be like, mm, nope, still didn't get it. I'm going to watch it again. I have a question. Did you rewatch it more than you rewatched the intro to Snorks where it's Captain Ortega and his ordeal with his ship? I probably watched that like 19 times. If you don't think that I have already gone and bought a whole flock of chickens and dressed them at Snorks <laughs> and have reenacted a live production of Captain Ortega's background in my yard oh my gosh. daily since that recording, you're way off target. 
Amazing. It's like, it merits so many watches, not like Shawshank Redemption, where you're like, it's amazing, I need to watch it over and over again because it's an amazing film production, but it's just like, what did I, it's like driving past a car accident and you want to back up and take another look to be like, what really went down here? That's an interesting way to put it, because as I was watching it too, I was trying to record or document all the different, again, I might call them robots, just for sake of calling them that, I understand that's not how the artist intended them to be. Right. But as I was trying to just catalog them all, I'm like, wait, did I already see that one? Hold on. Is that the same one, but it's like a different angle? Okay, where was this one sitting in relation to that one? Because the shots are close up. They're zoomed out. They're from this angle. They're from up here. They're from down there to the point where they're so abstract. You don't know if you've seen it before. Hold on. That one's kicking and that one was kicking. Oh, okay. I see. It's wearing women's shoes, but has men's trousers on. It's the same one. Like it's stuff like that where you're just like, oh, oh, okay. But to your point, you can't fully take this entire thing in and understand it. And even like three watches, I think you have to to go back. If I just may. So like we open with an aerial zooming in to a row apartment and a leg flies out the front door and kicks over a couple of jugs of fresh milk that have been delivered. And then you get inside this apartment and it's all these different types of automatons, robots, half-built humans, and one one bird who are just doing like small, jerky, repetitive movements. The, the legs, the three pairs of legs over the bed kind of dance and kick, but the rest is just like pan left, pan right, pan left, or jump up and down, jump up and down. Like there's no real story that unfolds. There's no like remarkable cinematography. It's just these... No. I don't know, 16 or 17, somewhere in that number, different little half robots jerkily moving back and forth a few feet for three and a half minutes while the song plays. Well, there's one exception. There are the the walking high heel legs, and that one yes. is fully walking. Again, it's like on a... A boom. A boom. Thank you. A boom. So it's walking in sort of that curved shape. But that's the one that's probably the most articulated and moving of all of them. Yeah. I joked in the sneak peek of last episode, move aside Kevin McAllister, because some of it reminded me of when he's trying to stage that the house is bustling with a big party and he's got all the different like yes! animatronic oh God, characters yeah. jerkily moving. And that's why I made that reference last episode, because it reminded me of that scene a little bit. I think what like throws me off about the video, and maybe it throws me off and other people really appreciate it, but it's like the inconsistency with... The robot automatons. Like you've got mm. full you've got full bodies who have faces, you've got partial limbs doing things, you've got babies, you've got the one long beaked bird skull. What'd you call the the flashlight eyes? There's a flashlight eyes. I call it like binocular flashlight eyes. Yeah. And then there's some that are even wearing lingerie. I had like a Jurassic Park Gennaro moment where I was like, are these auto erotica? Well like, there's one just that's like all butterfly over. wings and ladies underwear. There's one that's like, uh, it's a lamp head. Think of the lamp from Pixar when, like at the beginning when the little lamp thing comes out, like the desk (laughs) lamp. But it's wearing like lingerie. The artist Whiting, he said that Freud would have a field day with his work. And I think it's very true. Yeah. There's not a sexual tone to the music video. The pieces, you can't not help notice some sexuality to them. Uh, Try as you might. If you really sit and look at them, at least half of them you're going to notice, including, and I'll just let you fill in the gaps, but he talks about this, the man that's kind of 
jerking around in bed. He's kind of like hopping up and down in bed. That is supposed to be symbolic of something, according yeah, to you, Whiting. Yeah, you in history said like hopping. And when I saw that, like I de- mm, it's it, hopping is very generous. This is a British term, so I think we can say it. He refers to him as the wanking man. How about that? Sure. Yeah, sure. That makes us global, universal. We're reaching wider audiences. The wanking man. He also calls the three kicking trousers the pervy men. Okay, so help me out with that one. (laughs) How are we getting there? I don't know. That's what he calls them. He said that these three kicking trousers, they're trying to be endearing, is what he said. Again, this is from the mind of the creator. I do not think... Much like when we talked with Suzanne Mataboni about um, Once in a Lifetime, Talking Heads. And we were like, what is this music video about? And Suzanne, I think, was like, yeah, I think you just need to kind of step back a little bit and understand this is artistic expression. And there's not necessarily – it's a lot of ideas, but not necessarily a centralized, (laughs) clear message to be had. There's a lot of ideas here. I'm going to argue the exact same thing for this video, probably even more so, because we have less to go on, because there's – 0.0 lyrics. Actually, I take that back. I think the word fresh is sort of electronicized in there somewhere. That's all we have to go on. But we know darn good and well that this music video visually has nothing to do with the song itself. No, not at all. I'm definitely going to take that phrase back to work, though. There's definitely some ideas in here. Like, that's, <laughs> I need to use that in the future. That's good. And it's not meant to be, like, salty. It's just literally, there's a lot of artistic expression, but I can't say that any... I think I said this last time when we were talking about... God, what were we talking about? Where I said something, it was evocative, not referential. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Uh, snorks. No, I think it was about uh, Flight of the Navigator. It's about something in Flight of the Navigator. Interesting. Okay. But basically, I think it's what it is. It's supposed to be evocative. It's supposed to make you think. It's not supposed to be like, oh, this clearly represents the middle class. I don't think it's going to be anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) This obviously is the struggle of the middle class. (laughs) Yeah. This is the tyranny of capitalism clearly stated in this one. uh, Hold on. Let me find one I didn't find yet. Watching man with exposed lungs that's another yeah, one right yeah i think that's the disconnect for me if if um for me personally and i'm sure godly had a vision that happened there but i think it is the scattering of ideas that throws me off and if there was a central theme like if all the robots were oddly a little sensual then i'd be like all right at least there's something there's a thread going on here or if it mm-hmm. was like clearly a nuclear family like there was you know the the atomic age nuclear family because there's a baby at a table banging in a bowl of soup cereal something that kid is fussy. Or if it was Kevin McAllister and it's like they're all robots, but it's obviously a party and they're all like having right. a good time at this party, dancing and breakdancing a rocket. I would get it, but like it's so to your point, disjointed robot ideas. It merits a thousand watches trying to figure out what's happening. Yeah, there's like three men in a sofa. There's a newspaper restless leg man who I think is also wearing heels, kind of like um, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, like red kind of glittery heels, if I remember correctly. There's a lady in a bathtub, again, twitching. There's a guy playing the drums with his feet. Foot drumming. I mean, I need more foot drumming in my life. Oh, and then there's the, I call them the bickering married couple. Like the she keeps hitting the one in the back of the head, like the guy. Yeah, well, those are two that like pop to life and dance at the Grammys. That's really good. That that duo are two of the break dancers. I, I just have to say the... Uh, dancers on stage who were emulating the robots did a fantastic job. Oh, they like, sell it just, it so well. 
of looking mechanical. Again, people are there live. We're watching a blurry video that was from probably VHS that was translated to digital, that was put on YouTube, that was scaled down for reasons. This is not in like high def life. Mm -mm. And Mm -mm. these people were there and this blew them away. It's so cool. It was a very delightful, I didn't know that going into it. So when it happened, it was just a treat to watch. You know, you mentioned the talking heads and you brought us back to that. I think there's something else here too, where like, so once in a lifetime, that music video, there's all these like unclear movements that David Byrne does that are like, we find out later are references to spiritual practices. Yeah, he he does a pop and lock too, kind of. Right, a little right. Her, little herky jerky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in these few shots we get of Herbie Hancock on the TV, he's either playing the keyboard or he's just rubbing his hands like in the air. Like he's yeah. either like preparing for something or washing his hands. And when I saw the rubbing of the hands, that made me think of Burn in Once in a Lifetime as well. I was like, what is Herbie's choice here? Why is he rubbing his hands? I always thought you said Burns, like Mr. Burns, because doesn't he do that on The Simpsons? Like, excellent. Yes, that's what he's doing. doing. (laughs) It was a shout out to Mr. Burns on The Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to intuit everything that you're thinking a little too much, and I got ahead of myself. I, I, you know, we'll come back to the music video in just a hot second, but I, I will say there's a great music video. Uh, it's called Ultimix Beat Street at the Roxy. Do okay. You, have you ever heard of this? Have you seen this? Doesn't sound familiar to me. It looks like a late 80s. It's like a music video and it's Rocket, but it's like people in red jumpsuits and people in blue jumpsuits, like tracksuits, hmm. at a club and they do like a break dance off. Like a very classic, like it's a big circle. One person goes in, does like amazing moves on the floor, and yeah. then comes out and so on from the other team. And it's Rocket. It's really good. I just didn't know if you had dug anything up from that, but it's kind of fun. No, I, I missed that one in my research. That sounds like fun. So one thing that you asked me earlier. Yeah. You wanted to talk about the meaning yeah. of this video. I mean, the cat's out of the bag. Herbie had no freaking clue. <laughs> I think it's fair to say Godly and Cream had no freaking clue. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that Whiting was just doing his thing. Right. So how do you want to tackle this beast? So I know the answer. Like, I know what Godly said later. Wait, does he actually say, does he put words to it? Yeah, he has a statement on what the music video meant. The interview that I found where he talks about the meaning was shot decades after this song came out. So I wonder, to your point, if at the time he was just like, I love these freaking robots. Let's do four minutes of these robots on MTV. And that was it. And years later, he's like, crap, people keep asking me, I guess I got to come up with something of why I did this. Without knowing the meaning, if you tried to ascribe a meaning to the music video Rocket, what is the meaning? I don't think I've ever sought meaning for this video. (laughs) Nor do I intend to. So I know that's not an answer you want. You want me to come up with something wild. But I've never tried to find a meaning in it. This to me feels like, again, I'm going to take a page out of Suzanne's comment and just say like, this is one I'm not going to try to deconstruct because I don't think there's, there's nothing there there, right? Yeah. yeah. I just don't think there's any, there's no commentary. There's no nothing. It's just, I think the meaning is they found things that they felt worked together sonically, visually, and they're like, let's put these pieces together. Herbie's all about putting disparate stuff together and making it work. I think that sensibility is also godly and creams. And so you bring all these people together and they're just like, 
okay, we're going to do something that is out there, imaginative, wild, crazy, and it may not make any sense. That's probably the best thing I can tell you, which is not a meaning. It's just a how they arrived at what they arrived at. You look unsatisfied on the other end of this call right now. No, no, I appreciate you don't have to, There's you know. A, there's, folks, I'm, I'm staring down the barrel of a sourpuss right now. You're, that, you're, let me just tell you. You're staring down the barrel Crank of a... Crank mixer, Ben. Tell me, tell me what you think this should be about or what it is about. Since I gave an unsatisfying response. To quote from the book, I Want My MTV, The Uncensored Story of the Music Video Revolution. Godley comes out and says, The video was about our fear of machines taking over. In the video, robots have replaced humans. At the end of the video, when Herbie comes on the TV, the TV gets thrown out the window because robots are afraid of humans. I'm going to call retcon. Yeah, see, that's kind of what it feels like, Massive retcon. Also, it was very hard for me not to make a Maximum Overdrive reference right there about machines coming to life. Right. I feel like Godley looked back and he's like, what was all the pop culture about in the 80s? Well, they had Terminator, they had RoboCop, they had Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, everybody was like really freaked out about robots. Let's say it's about the robots taking over. That'd be cool. Yeah. Thematically, I think it's really interesting. And this is something that stuck with a lot of people. I will say I've gone through and saw some really fun comments because I've been looking at a bunch of videos and a bunch of different sites. And I I will sometimes, particularly for this show, scroll through the comment section. I know it's always a dicey proposition, but this was all surprisingly quite pleasant. And there's just a few things that people said that I wanted to kind of call out a little bit. So I think these are all from YouTube. Bob Dobelina says, we'll never forget sitting in my room and this coming on MTV for the first time. It absolutely blew my mind as it blew everyone's mind at the time. But then that was MTV at the time. It was exciting. We would just spend time watching MTV because you never knew what would come on next. This could have been followed by Twisted Sister or Flock of Seagulls or Quiet Riot. Incredible days they were. Agree, agree. Uh, John Wells says, to say this track caused a stir is a massive understatement. So many kids at my high school lost their minds. That's the theme that kind of keeps coming up. Breakdancing and pop locking were exploding at the time, and this was the soundtrack. Up until that point, I barely knew what turntable scratching was. Kids were tagging Grandmaster D Street on classroom tables. That's awesome. Tagged, man. Freaking tagged. That's very cool. And this is just another funny thing. On the other hand, the jazz purists in my family were very upset with Herbie. The inevitable calls for sellout were rampant. What? One family member spoke with Herbie about it. This person had a family member. What? <laughs> I just imagine this person like drives three states over. It just knocks at Herbie Hancock's door and is like, um, you listen I'm going to respectfully disagree with your choices, sir. Oh, my God. Yeah, I said he respected Herbie, but I don't know if he ever softened his opinion on that particular record. But John said Herbie had nothing to apologize for. Jazz purists were furious with Miles when he went electric, uh, but thank goodness he did. Here's another funny one. I love this comment. This one actually made me bark laugh. <laughs> This user said, my mother would sing this to me every night before bed. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Hold on. Wait a second. That's so okay. good. Oh what, how do you sing this to somebody before bed? That's the joke, Ben. That's the joke. Good night, sweetheart. Exactly. That's the joke. Oh, my God. Uh, and then my, my other favorite one, I'll just leave it at that, was Michael Tablet, who said, 
I never forgot this song. First and last time I attempted to break dance. I found out why it's called break dancing. All oh, my no. pride was broken in 15 seconds. Oh I my God. Was <laughs> pride That's was awesome. broken, not bones. Pride, just pride. Just pride. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I'm glad you looked those up. Those are actually really funny. Yeah, I, I just I wanted to get some other opinions, and there were such great thoughts and memories from the comment section. So thanks to everybody for uh, for posting those, so that I could uh, swipe those for the podcast. One last thing I just wanted to mention. It's another. We're, we're getting so self referential. It's a little bit indulgent, I might say, at this point. I feel like we're making multiple references to ourselves in every episode now. We're like, allow us to reference ourselves. So let's allow us to reference the Teddy Ruxpin episode. Yeah, sure, please. From season two, wherein I was watching the behind the scenes and Whiting, again, he's the uh, artist. He's feeding one of the robots that's mouth is moving an apple slice. And so he's like putting the apple slice in its mouth as it's like jerking by and then he peels the face back to show the clockwork underneath. Oh, God. And again, it's next level nightmare. Gee. Much like when I watched that deconstructed video where somebody pulled apart a Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> like there's a dad and a son who pulled it apart to see what the mechanics were underneath. And Let's it was like out read of a story. Five Nights at Freddy's Nightmare. So. <laughs> I just, I had to say, like, that was another callback or tie-in because I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh. When you think a nightmare can't get worse, nope, it can. A little worse. Because he also, like, took the trousers down on the legs to show the apparatus underneath and it was kind of creepy looking. So I'm sure it was. All right, Ben. I think that about does it for chemistry class. Yeah. Let's depart this uncanny valley of disembodied figures and head to lunch. And I do have to say, this does take me back to high school when one year I had anatomy and physiology right before lunch. Oh, God. Oh, no. Yeah. Nothing says appetizing like a dissection. I'm not. Yeah. We would dissect something and then go to lunch. Oh, boy. Terrible timing. Anyway, nevertheless, let's grab a bite before we dissect Herbie's career beyond the 80s and the influence his work has had on culture. I love it. I'm hoping a robot bird will baby bird an apple into my mouth. That sounds really delicious. <laughs> I'll be there. Ladies and gentlemen, Showbiz Pizza Place presents all new shows. Well, rest is here, no doubt. And the music goes down and round. Showbiz Pizza Place is the most fun place in town. With over 60 new electronic games, the finest pizza, salads, and sandwiches around. And Billy Bob and the rock fire Explosion entertaining in all new shows every few minutes. Now, more than ever, come for the pizza, stay for the fun. I bet that pizza tastes good. Mm-hmm. You've never seen a place like Showbiz Pizza Place will serve you a pizza second to none. Showbiz Pizza Place with over 60 electronic games. Pizza baked fresh every day. And the stage show extravaganza on three stages. So come for pizza. Stay for the fun. Okay, we are back from lunch. Ben, you were so hungry. You were banging your fist on a bowl like that baby in the music video. (laughs) That's exactly what I looked like. And I have to tell you, for contemporary culture, I think I had Haas and Pfeffer for lunch because... Hoss and Pfeffer. My research took me down some wicked rabbit holes, man. (laughs) 
I feel like your jokes are giving me more gray hairs. Oh, uh, there it is, everybody. Uh, you come to the show actually for three things. Don't forget the dad jokes. You gotta. You there's three the things, jokes. everybody. It's what'd you say? Truth, the commercial, and dad jokes. And dad there jokes. Come for, come for the pop culture. Stay for the dad jokes. That's what we always say. So I wanted to see a little bit about what influence either this music video or song had on things that came after it. And look. I think there are any number of things that we will never be able to fully articulate that the artist that was inspired will never be able to fully articulate because there's just some things that become so ingrained as in a part of culture that you don't even realize where the influence came from. Right. So I couldn't really find an artist who said Herbie Hancock's video just made me decide to do this. Yeah. Like I couldn't find that thing. But the DNA, certainly, and the fact that he's been so experimental and eclectic and boundary crossing and genre mashing, there's just no way that it hasn't had a profound influence. But I just, I couldn't find that one person who said, or there was not like a a great article that was like, the works of this person and this person wouldn't have happened if not for Herbie and the Rocket video. So I put that out there as a sort of front to contemporary culture because I did a search Sometimes when I don't know a thing, I'm sure we all do this, I did a Google search and I said, who's been inspired by Herbie Hancock? Oh boy. And That's a general th- Google search. And the third thing down said, who hasn't been inspired by Herbie yeah, Hancock? And I said, fair okay, point. listen, I feel like the internet's talking to me. Point taken. Thank you very much. You're right. So there it is. I think the imprint is certainly there. Hip hop continuing to fuse with different forms of music scratching drum music this wasn't the first but i think really popularized it brought it into the mainstream consciousness and then people were off to the races in terms of the music video can you think of any other music video that maybe like you talked about i guess it wasn't a music video but you talked about the video where people were like dancing to rocket kind of in a a classic 80s dance-off montage but can you think of any other music videos you're you're usually my go-to guy where you're like Oh, this music video, this, 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 and this. Is there anything you can think of that is rocket inspired? Yeah, I mean, that's really hard. I think it's rare. In a sense, there's a lot that's gone a different direction. I feel like at least since the 80s, music videos tend to tend to try and have a real clear story. Like, mm. you know, the default is always boy meets girl, there's conflict. Uh, things are going bad, they make up, everything's okay at the end. I feel like that's the most stereotypical story in every single music video, probably in the history of music. And this doesn't really have a story. Like you said, it's it's been retconned. But like experimental visuals, the use of animatronics or right. I mean, so wandering I, limbs, something like that. I was going to say the exception to that rule is, I feel like, is OK Go. Where OK Go does really experimental visuals that are really fascinating. They don't tell a story. It's mm-hmm. either a Rube Goldberg machine or other sort of just crazy, whether they're dancing on treadmills or they're doing zero G when a plane is doing dives in the stratosphere with bouncy balls all over the cabin. Right. The song has nothing to do with the music video. There's at least that thread of like being willing to experiment that the thread does not need to be thick between the music sure. and the music video. 
Yeah, I think maybe it's kind of like what I was saying for the the song and you know the the approach to music itself. It just becomes an ingrained part of the culture, and so you're always thinking, well, how can I take this in a new direction? And that's really all like Herbie was thinking about. That's really all that Godley and Cream were thinking about. How can we go in a new direction? Yeah. And okay, go probably the exact same thing. Like, well, what hasn't been done before? How can we you know twist people's minds and surprise them and and do something innovative or cool? So. You know, maybe that is the connective thread. You know, just it's that simple and basic. We don't have to go any deeper than it. Well, deeper I went. I searched oh dear. animatronics in music videos. Oh, fun. Okay, I'm intrigued by what you found. Not the search results I wanted, but the search results I deserved. Did you have to do it in incognito mode? Were you in safe search? No, nothing salacious. It was more, do you think this is disturbing? Hold my Pepsi free. I'm oh going to send you something even creepier. So the first thing I got was MGMT's Electric Feel. You know that song? Suck me like an electric feel. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm there. Being sung by defunct showbiz pizza parlor animatronic animal band members. Oh, God. That's uncomfortable. And then I went down this entire rabbit hole. I won't go too far into it, but oh, I you will discovered the article. Whole culture. Oh, no. I sure did. I'm going to put the article link in the show notes. So Aaron Fector was the inventor of those robots. And he had created all of these mechanized performers for like hundreds, if not like over a thousand showbiz pizza parlors. And oh once God. it went defunct, he maintained a warehouse just full. So again, I joked about Five Nights at Freddy's. This is literally what inspired Five Nights at Freddy's. And he has a whole warehouse of these defunct animatronics. And apparently he started a YouTube channel where people will ask him to program them to perform a song. And this electric feel is just one of those. Rockafire Explosion is the name of these musical mascots. I did not realize they had a name. It's a great name. I love the name instantly. It's amazing. There's a great Wired article about it. I will put it up for people who are curious about it. And it took me to one more thing, which is a 2004 Interpol music video for their song, Evil. And there is a puppet in that, which fans have called Norman, who looks extremely creepy. The valley just got even more uncanny. It's the uncanniest of valleys. I dare say it's an uncanny chasm. And it is... Yeah, it's very creepy looking. And what's more creepy is the uh, decaying aged version of this after, you know, it's been sad in disrepair for the past, what, 18 years. But that was the closest one where it was an actual puppet. It was singing along to the song and there was a story to the song. I mean, I definitely see lots of videos of like over the years of the Boston Dynamics robots dancing to like show off that tech when it, when it was big dog and then they moved to the two-legged thing that can run and back jump back flip and stuff and then now the little yellow murder dogs right you know that's not a traditional music video but i guess to your point it's like it's more about just the spirit of willing to be experimental in this medium yeah i think so the only other funny references i had just because they cracked me up so the kevin McAllister one from home alone i already made so that one just always stuck in my head whenever I thought of this music video. The second one is from Tommy Boy, 1995, Chris Farley. Do you remember that movie? I mean, 100%, but I'm in, I, I am drooling to find out the tie that you make. It's just a dumb joke, but my brother and I always crack up at it, which is 
someone asks for a signature and they're like, I need your John Hancock on this. And Chris Farley's character, Tommy goes, John Hancock, it's Herbie Hancock. Duh. Oh, <laughs> that's good. It's just a stupid reference. I love that the, like, the Tommy boy character, though, would know Herbie Hancock. Like, you gotta Herbie give Hancock, it to uh, Tommy yeah. for that. But of course, doesn't know John Hancock, which does track. So, uh, <laughs> so there is that. The, the last thing I think would be worth mentioning in contemporary culture is Hancock's career. Oh, yeah, please. The discography of Mr. Herbethy Aloysius Hancock VII. <laughs> Herbie Hancock. This is his discography. Remember when we were like, that's his, what was it, 35th album? What? Yeah, right. He was just getting warmed up. Piddly numbers, kids. This is what we got going on here. 41 studio albums, 12 live albums, 62 compilation albums, five soundtrack albums, and there's still miscellaneous tracks and all that kind of stuff that are kind of just scattered and not otherwise collected. That's insane. I did not do the math, but in my head, that's like 120. How is that possible? That's incredible. That's so impressive. It's just mind-bending. That many albums featuring his work. And yet, I don't know that he's fully appreciated. To your point, like, how groundbreaking Rocket is, but we never talk about it. It hasn't reached that level where it's synonymous with the art form or the decade. Like, people know it, but you've always said our sweet spot is not the thing you remember, it's the thing you forgot you loved. Yeah, right. And this is, like, firmly in that... But it's like the impact of his career, and he's in his 80s now, and he's, I think, still performing. He's still out there, which is just, it's amazing. He's unstoppable. It's great. It's very impressive. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to discount who I'm going to reference. I'm trying to pull Herbie up that I feel in some ways, like, we talk so much about, like, Like a Prayer with Madonna, but we don't talk Mm. about Herbie Hancock and Rocket or or the rest of his career. Like, he's an amazing artist. It was such a fun set of rabbit holes to go down. As always, it takes you in unexpected places. And I just enjoyed so much learning along with you. We've always said this. We're not experts on this show, despite what a particular listener has said about us. We are not experts. <laughs> we are fellow classmates learning along with you. And we're just excited to like do a book report and then come to class and tell you about the thing. We're the nerds letting you peek at our paper during the test. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're showing you our notes. We've never once on this show taken on the role of the principal or the teacher. We've always been no like God, no. the students in class sitting next to you, probably like making jokes in the background and disrupting everybody because that's what we do. 100%. But anyway. I will say, if you do want to learn more about the background of this and about Herbie, he did publish his own memoir uh, several yes, years ago thank you. called Possibilities. Um, yes. Which again, like is very eponymous of his career of like, here's what you can do. Here's what's possible. So Possibilities, Herbie Hancock, pick it up, get the rest of the story. And not to be confused, I think he had an album also called Possibility. So not to be confused with that, but there is a memoir from 2014. But you could grab both, listen to one while you read the other. It probably pairs quite nicely. I think they line up like, uh, was it Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz or whatever? It, it pairs nicely like a fine godly and cream. Just, just uh. that, new, <laughs> that new apricot dark chocolate they've got out. So nice. So nice. Oh my God. You're, you're making me so hungry for like, <laughs> sounds, I need something to eat. So, so good. Okay. Apparently that, that Haas and Pfeffer didn't sit with me from lunch. So thank you so Hoss much for joining me on this topic. But we have one last stop on our route today. And that is 
math class. And I'm just curious if we put all of Herbie's albums on one scale and then I go run and take a flying leap and jump onto the other, does it even budge? (laughs) Probably not. I mean, that does sound like a question, though, for math class or probably more likely physics. But you know what? Hey, music is mathematical. It's a fusion of art and science. So in that spirit, Mm -hmm. let's head down the hall to see how this music video and song holds up today. I'll meet you there in 4-4 time. Uh, Jazz would be like, you know... 763. Yeah, right. I don't even know. That's not even like probably possible. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh man. Okay, we uh we took a fun journey. We had so many side tangents that were delightful beyond measure. But what must be measured is our opinions of how this holds up today. We're putting this music video, this song on the scales. What say you? What Dr. Benjamithy. <laughs> Benjamithy. That's exactly what I was going for. Benjamithy. Benjamithy well, Cream. Benjamithy Cream. Godly Cream. What do you think? <laughs> Just like you sort of structured this episode, this is great. I've got a takeaway for three things. The artist, the song, and the music video. Lovely. And for once, old listeners, strap in. I actually wrote my math notes ahead of time instead of winging it. Whoa! I know. Really going for he the extra the credit homework, at the everybody. end of the, the year. The book report is done. He wasn't doing it on the bus as it pulled up to the school. <laughs> oh my god! Which man? Well, way to way to do the throwback for me for school. There's a lot of homework finishing on the bus. Um, I have no doubts. No doubts. So, just like you said at the end of contemporary culture, I like actually really enjoyed learning about Herbie Hancock for this. Like mm. when you brought this topic up, when I heard Herbie Hancock, literally all my brain said was jazz. Like, I knew that he was a very popular jazz artist, and that's kind of the end of my knowledge, which I apologize. And I thought more about this, and I was like, I'm going to apologize about this episode. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to redact my apology. Because, like, I feel like most people's knowledge about music looks like a a heartbeat on a heart monitor. Like, you Mm. have deep valleys of knowledge about very specific parts of music. Maybe there's a band you know about a lot, or there's, like a type of music you love. Like, you ask me anything about ska or punk rock, I will talk your ear off. If you ask one another about your specific bands you love the most, you'll know a lot. But it's hard to have deep knowledge about a breadth, a wide breadth of music. So, like, Herbie, that's what it triggered for me was jazz. But to learn, like, how prolific he was and that he was under Miles Davis, what college degree backgrounds he had and how collaborative he was and that he's still making music is... He's an amazing human being. He's really remarkable, and he's he's humble about it. You know, in those interviews we saw, like, he's a good human. There's a lot of mm-hmm. great musicians who, when you interview them, you're like, I really wish you'd stop talking outside of singing. That would be great if you would it's just... It's that don't meet your quiet. heroes kind of thing. Yeah, yeah sure. but he is amazing. And specifically in this time and what he did for Rocket, you know... Herbie's on a whole different level, but it reminded me of what we talked about. Oh, God, here we go again with the self-referential. It reminded me <laughs> when we talked about Paul Simon and Graceland. We're like, maybe that was just a movement in the 80s. I don't recall. But like really trying to take sounds and music from all over the world and make something new and sort of like this idea of like almost a world peace about it. Like if we can all right. put our sounds together, then we speak a common language and everything's going to get better. And I feel like he was doing that. Like, he brought in these different sounds to make something totally new. And that was really fascinating. It's very, very, very cool. Yeah. So that's Herbie. In regards to the music video, 
you know, I do really appreciate something about this era, and it's something that Suzanne said. This is the second time. I didn't I didn't know how much more Mataboni would come up the rest of her show. But it's like when she was talking about back then, you know, people like me, marketers, weren't allowed in the room with the artist mm. and the creative team. There were no middle managers meddling in the music. It was just the creatives, and they were like, here's our idea. And they were like, I trust you. Get nuts. Go hard. Yeah. And they would work hard, have a great time, and they would deliver something really neat. We just don't have that anymore. So I love that that culture was going on with this music video. But Christopher, I do not like this music video, Sam I am. I just, I don't. It's, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Like, like sure. I'm like looking at a piece of art I can't understand and after watching it so many times i'm not sure it's able to be understood and that's frustrating to me i like i am a gentleman who likes to see the puzzle pieces and put the puzzle together yes and there's no story arc and you know i love a good story and i think where the music video really failed and i understand that it's like a product of the restrictions of mtv at the time but herbie's muse rocket what rocket did was it elevated dj scratching and mixing and it elevated um, hip-hop in such important ways. And if that sort of idea was done today, the music video would put those artists who did that stuff on screen. And it mm. would celebrate those cultures. And it would show dancers breakdancing to that music. It would show people record scratching and how it worked in the club. It would show the fashion of hip-hop. But mm. no, it's these weird, it's like Godly was like, I like these robots. They look crazy. Let's do four minutes of them on film. And like, that was it. But with a British accent, not like a mafia accent. <laughs> so like that, it just bums me out. There was so much opportunity. I started to try and justify it for myself. I was like, I was like, Herbie was all about sampling and finding disparate pieces of music and putting them together. Whiting's robots are found garbage that he's put together to make something. Maybe they're connected that way. No, I'm saying that. They never had that intention. <laughs> so, like, it's fascinating, but I just do not like the music video. Fair enough. The last part of this stool of the stool of study that you've given us is the music. And the music is a, is an iconic hook. I love that. Dun 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. And I think it was really lit in Beverly Hills Cop. I, I loved it in that. I think it really played well. I'm glad they got the rights to it. Same song. Exact same song. But like, I can't understate how important it was to bringing hip hop and DJing both to the masses. Like they were taking off in their own cultures and their own communities and, in, you know, radio stations. But Herbie's prominence already in music and his name and getting that that video on MTV really helped continue the momentum that those two music movements were making. And mm -hmm. like modern music is hard sometimes to differentiate what genre it fits into because hip hop and DJing and scratching are so prolific now. And right. you've got to attribute some of that launch to Herbie and Rocket, what he did and his belief in those artists he he partnered with. I think it's great. I think what, what's challenging for me in listening to Rocket today, I'm definitely like a music needs to fit the environment. You know, I'm going to put on my, um, what's that like electronic music people just work to that's like, or you read to? Oh, lo-fi? Lo-fi. Yeah. Okay. So you've got like your lo-fi beats. I've got some mm. of my like ACDC rock when I want to go out and like ride my motorcycle. I listen to like techno when I exercise. Like music needs to match my mood of what's going on. And I don't mm. know when I would listen to Rocket. 
Like, I'm sure Rocket, like, was lit in the club back in the day and when you were breakdancing out on the sidewalk. But, like, I'm having trouble finding the mood for Rocket today when I want to, like, play Rocket. Okay. And that's hard for me. But it's so important. That's what I feel. I feel like when you pitched me this topic, you had a bit of, like, horror around the robots. But have, have they found a way into your heart? Do you love them now? Are you designing pervy legs over your couch or whatever Whiting called them? How, how do you feel? Where do, where do you leave this? I do appreciate you uh, sitting through the discomfort yeah. and being okay with it, apparently multiple times, because apparently you watched it like 22 times. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and I loved your kind of wrap up and summary. That was amazing. So, you know, what I would say and kind of looking at the three things, like you said, the the three legs of the stool, you know, Herbie's career obviously is fantastic. And I think it's measured in the ability to march to the beat of his own drum machine. Uh, foot drums. <laughs> yeah, foot drum, foot drum. Uh, led by curiosity and being open, he's managed to have an amazing and productive career while seeming to enjoy himself along the way. Again, you don't always get that. Some people suffer for their work. He seems to just yeah. be having fun and really finding balance in uh, Buddhism. He is a practicing Buddhist, uh, as well as in his wife and daughter, and really doing things on his own terms. And we didn't really talk about his family, but he's been married with his, to his wife for like, I think it's like 40-some. Wow. Maybe it's approaching 50 years. Good for him. So Good for both of them. They've really spent a That's lifetime awesome. together. You know, so I, I think, you know, again, finding the balance, but not also compromising artistically when he knew what he wanted. In fact, he even said in an interview in 1983, I do what I want to do. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in music. I'm interested in learning about music and learning about myself possibilities was that word definitely i think is at the core of his style and his essence and who he is as a person uh and what i love about the song rocket is it's not an endpoint; it's just a mere milestone on his musical journey and for a song without lyrics it really captivates with its infectious sounds you just can't sit still to it Ooh, and yeah. the keys oh the keys are absolutely 80s-tastic Everything hooks. Everything about it is just, it's kind of mesmerizing. And then the music video, I think, well, certainly it's left a mark in my mind, as I will never forget how inventive and off the wall it was. And the credit really goes to everyone involved, not just Herbie, especially Jim Whiting for his nightmare-inducing creations, as well as Godly and Cream for, like, seeing the vision, having the direction, pulling everything together. And Deacons probably would have not gotten his next job if not for doing this. So we'd have no, no country for old men. <laughs> oh, brother, oh, brother, really, where art thou? Because there's no director of photography <laughs> to make it happen. That is a threat I never imagined being made in this episode. <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. Uh, that was off script. You know, I was right on my stuff. Sure. That just yeah. came to me. You're jazzing. You're jazz improving right I'm now. Jazzing, jazzing and jazzercising. Oh, so my good. God. And again, going back to the video, somehow the enigmatic figures managed to interpret this enigmatic song in a way that somehow makes perfect sense. And I really don't get it. So is it the best video? No. Is it something I would watch on repeat? Certainly not. But does it still in my brain and I'm going to think about it every now and then if I see like a creepy mannequin in an abandoned storefront? You better believe it. Absolutely. And that, to me, that's enough. That's the joy of art. We don't have to understand it fully so long as it inspires. And it's safe to say that Herbie's career, this song, 
and the music video has inspired many. And for that, I believe it stands the test of time. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you for taking me on this journey, both confusing and intriguing. Yes. And inspiring from Herbie's career. That was great. That was a great pick. And if nothing else, this episode has inspired you to pick the next topic because it is your turn. If nothing else, it's your turn. If there's no other connective thread, you're on deck, sir. So we are recording this, like we said, a few days before Christmas. This comes out at the beginning of 2023. So happy new year, everybody. Yeah. Uh, Listening in the future. But what does our future hold for the next episode of 80s High? I feel honored to get to make the last pick of 2022 and bid this year adieu. While we're recording right now, we're a week from the end of the year. And, you know, I've been thinking hard. I don't know if you've been thinking about this. This is the thing you do. But, you know, New Year's is a time for your resolutions. It's a time to think about a change you're going to make, what you're going to do to work on correcting the mistakes of the past and charting a course for a better future for everyone. And that made me think, what reflects that from the 80s? Hmm. And for that, we're going to have to join Dr. Sam Beckett and Al as they ask Ziggy where they're going next on their next Quantum Leap. That's right. On the next episode of 80s High, we're going back to 1989's breakout TV sitcom, Quantum Leap, all about jumping back in time and trying to right the wrongs of celebrities and no-names around the world. Wow. I mean, this is a very iconic show. I say this way too often for doing this podcast. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Quantum Leap. So this is going to be brand new territory for me. I dare say it will be a leap into the unknown for myself. I was going to say, it's perfect. You will be just like Dr. Sam Beckett, leaping back in time, not knowing where you've ended up and where you need to get by the end of our hour and a half of the episode. <laughs> I'm very excited and I can't wait to, yeah, to learn more and talk about it when we see each other in 2023, Ben. Beautiful. I can't wait to be Scott Bakula here with you on 85. <sighs> One more dad joke. Had to get it in there before the bell. Oh, my God. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate it. Hey, you know, it's the end of the year, beginning of the year. Maybe a resolution might be to give us a little bit of shout out if you're liking the podcast. Oh, yeah. Give it a little bit of love on your platform of choice. Certainly Apple Music is a great place to rate. I think you can do it on um, on Amazon Music as well. And certainly if you're listening on Spotify. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little uh, little little star review, that would be awesome. Even better if you wanted to leave uh, some words to inspire the next listener to check out 80s High. We would be oh so appreciative. Word of mouth is really what makes it happen. And we just love to see our little audience grow. But I would like to have it make a quantum leap in 2023. There. There's my tie There it is. There it is. That's all I had to say. Thank you so much. We do this for you all who are the listeners. And we we so much appreciate you uh, sticking with us, hopping on board. And uh, we look forward to more fun in 2023. Keep it real, class of 80s high. Even, we hope, you rock it in 2023. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. 
If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Thank you.